Welcome to Voices, Then and Now, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast that features firsthand experiences from Dana-Farber patients. In this episode, we'll hear Amy McHugh recount her experience caring for her daughter with cancer and catch up with the family to see how they're doing today. When you have kids, you worry a lot. Are they gonna fit in? Will they be smart or kind, successful? You don't worry about them having cancer. The odds just seem too low. But that's what happened to Emily, our inquisitive, playful four-year-old girl in May 2009. Emily had been a typical, normal kid. She went to preschool every day, loved the park, and would play princess in imaginary play with her older sister Isabel for hours. Then she started complaining of knee pain. I assumed, as most parents probably would, that it was growing pains and let it slide. But she kept complaining, so we headed to the doctor. They thought it was Lyme's disease. But when she didn't get better with an antibiotic, I kept pushing and eventually we ended up at Boston Children's Hospital for a bone marrow draw. When a team of doctors arrive to talk to you and the resource person gives your daughter a bald doll with a central line to play with, you know it can't be good. You know it's cancer. We found out that day that Emily had neuroblastoma, which we knew absolutely nothing about. My husband Shane and I initially breathed a sigh of relief when we heard it was neuroblastoma and not leukemia, which had been so deadly when we were kids. But we soon found out just how tough treatment for neuroblastoma was, physically and emotionally, and that the odds for survival weren't great. Emily had high-risk neuroblastoma, so we were able to take part in a clinical trial, testing whether two stem cell transplants were better than one. And when we found out Emily had been randomized for two, I was terrified. I knew the toxicity from two transplants would affect her quality of life. But I also knew that just one might not get all the cancer. I was conflicted and mostly scared. But we wanted the best odds for Emily and to help kids down the line, so we moved forward. The first transplant, which was supposed to be the easier one, nearly killed her. But my strong, feisty kid somehow made it through the treatment that would kill an adult instantly. The second transplant, just two weeks later and right before Christmas, was just as tough on all of us. Christmas 2009 was a dark day. Isabel didn't want anything to do with her presence because Emily wasn't home. Emily woke for about 10 minutes that day, not long enough to open her new American Girl doll. Our family was spread out, separate, and sick. It was an awful, awful day. We spent the better part of 18 months in the hospital, Shane and I rotating, four days at the hospital with Emily, then switching to four days at home, working and caring for Isabel. Shane and I passed each other quickly in our hospital room or lobby, We'd live park our car in the front of the hospital, give one another the rundown, and head back to our rotating duty. Very rarely was there emotion. There was just too much to do. On the rare occasion that Emily was out of the hospital and home, it was almost as stressful. She had a central line and 10 medications. There were always food and hydration issues. I was on and in nurse mode from the time I woke up until the time I went to sleep. I remember coming up every day for radiation, in the snow, driving two hours into Boston from the Cape, 
It was February, and we refused to spend the night in Boston when we could come home and spend some time, any time, with one another. We made our bedroom with a king bed into a mini hospital room and let the girls sleep together every night. Shane often slept on a mattress on the floor, waiting to be woken up with something Emily needed. It wasn't perfect, but at least we were together. It was interesting to see the different ways my husband and I responded to treatment. In the beginning, I made friends with other families on the floor, sharing stories about our experiences. Shane kept to himself. But by the end of treatment, it was the opposite. It just got too hard for me to know the families who were going through the same awful experience. Some of the kids didn't make it. I couldn't handle any more emotion. I was on overload. One night during her first transplant, Emily got sent to the ICU. It was scary for both of us. When my husband and dad got there the next day, I had to leave. A kid a few rooms down had died the night before and I just couldn't handle it. It was a new low for me. For all the times that I had been able to push through, this time I couldn't. I knew though, deep within me, that Emily wouldn't die if I wasn't there. And she pulled through yet again. When we finally came to the end of a long 18 months, I thought I'd be so happy that we'd have a big celebration with balloons and glitter everywhere, the whole thing. But I just fell apart. I didn't get sick once when Emily was in treatment, not once. But when she got home, I got sick with everything you can imagine and was incredibly depressed. We didn't fit in anywhere. We were out of the cancer world where we had been surrounded by people who knew what we were going through and could relate. But we weren't part of the real world yet with a daughter who had extensive collateral damage from treatment. I'd ask myself, do I hold my breath for five years and see if she makes it? The worry didn't, doesn't, stop, ever. You become so protective of yourself, your kids, your heart. You build this fortress because there's no way you can maintain the emotional output that overcomes you at the beginning. You become almost cold and detached just to make it through. And it takes a long time to let that fortress down because it's really scary to let go. The consequences of this treatment will stay with Emily forever. Her kidneys function at 25%. She has a 65% bilateral hearing loss. She won't be able to have kids and will need estrogen for bone strength and well-being. And there are scars on the rest of us too ones that aren't as easy to see. But Emily's just as feisty and loud as she ever was. She's smart, she has friends, she plays sports. She never ever says she can't. She always pushes through. It's that Will and her sister that saved her life. That was Amy McHugh sharing her experience caring for her daughter, Emily, during treatment for neuroblastoma in 2009. She's now joined by her husband, Shane, and her daughters, Emily and Isabel, to talk about what the experience was like for the family, how they're doing now, and what advice they have for other families coping with cancer. Anytime we had to come up here, even after the fact, we're just stressful. You know, when we had to come up for scans, obviously, we had to wait for results, mm -hmm. which was always difficult. Always difficult. Because at that point, no one was quite sure if, if your cancer would come back or not. 
So you'd either wait till late that afternoon or the next day to get the results, and that was always a difficult 24 hours. So now when we come up, it's actually, we, Emily and I have a very good time. Typically we get a hotel, and then usually we go out to dinner the night before, get up, grab a nice breakfast, a little leisurely drive-in, and then um, certainly appointments are more relaxed than they used to be. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. What do you like most when we come up here? The food. Well, you can eat what you want. Yes. Right? Food, food and drinks have always been important, though, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think back to when you were in treatment, what was what did we have to search down the hospital for? A couple things. Cape Cod potato chips. And what kind of Cape Cod potato chips? Because they would be a normal bag of potato chips that you would open, and then you'd only eat certain ones. The ones that were double. Double folded. So we went through bags and bags of Cape Cod potato chips because of the double folds. And the drinks, right? Mm-hmm. Well, do you remember the drink? So it was Grape Propel. Grape Propel. Grapeity Grape. And there was only one place of children's to find it. And then you, you didn't want Grapeity Grape anymore. Then you transitioned to, you remember what the next thing was? Gatorade. Grater, not just any Gatorade. What color Gatorade? Blue. Blue Gatorade. So we Blue. went from Grapeity Grape to Blue Gatorade. And then the thing that you loved then that you still love now is? Pizza. Pizza. Always pizza, right? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. what do you remember? Anything? Do you remember coming to the hospital a lot? Oh, I remember when we got Barry. Yes. Barry. And who was Barry at? A big, blonde, stuffed animal bear. That's right. Because you had to have the absolute biggest stuffed animal in the room. When Emily was in treatment, it was very difficult because the four of us were almost never together, ever. And that only became more challenging during um, transplant. You know, Amy and I would pass each other. I'd say goodbye to M. Amy would say hello. I'd head out, meeting Isabel back at home. And then Amy would start her shift. And it, I would say it was lonely for everybody. It's lonely. Yeah. And I think we used to talk about how it, the person who was home had the harder job because when you were here, you knew exactly what was going on all the time. But when you were the person home, you wanted to know what was going on all the time and you just couldn't. You know, you were going to work or we were getting Isabel from the bus or life was completely different at home. So that made it even more challenging because there was always, your brain would just go crazy with what could be going on or what might be going on and you wouldn't know. But it was lonely. There was a lot of times when Isabel missed Emily tremendously. Um, We tried to Skype a couple times. That was disastrous because Emily looked different um, from her treatment, which made Isabel upset. And then you didn't want to talk at all anymore. And I would say, Izzy, please talk to her. She's dying to talk to you. We would get them up here get Isabel up here when we could. It was during the winter of H1N1, so the hospital was closed to siblings most of the time. Um, But there were times when it was, and you would come up here and into her hospital room, and you remember what you guys would do? Uh, Watch SpongeBob. Watch SpongeBob all the time, and you would get up in our hospital bed with her and sit with her and watch TV. 
But I would say to Emily all the time, she'd be so, so sick. And I would say to her, you have to get better. You gotta get better, you gotta go home and see Izzy. And I think you would agree with this, Aim, that the, the, the person who mattered most for him to see was Isabel, hands down. Agreed. Hands down. Agreed. Um, and that's what transplant, that's why transplant was so difficult because that six week period, Isabel couldn't come for a visit and we didn't have any other way for the two of them to connect. And when we got back from that first transplant, that was Thanksgiving Day, 2009. Mm -hmm. And we got home and it was the first time the two of them had seen each other in at least six weeks. Yeah. And that was a very um, heartfelt moment. It was. Isabel that morning helped me, <laughs> my cute five-year-old helped me clean the house because Isabel was very, uh, you were very concerned about germs. So you had a little spray bottle and a cloth and you went through all the handles and everything that Emily might touch and you sprayed and sprayed and sprayed and I think what was so great about Emily coming home is that it was so safe for her there. Emily had a nose tube. Um, remember your nose tube? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you remember about it? It was orange. It was orange. Yeah. So Em had a nose tube because um, she wasn't eating enough. Isabel might have said, what's that? And she said, a nose tube. And that was it. They just went and they played and I think it was that's what got Emily through, was just having the comfort of somebody to watch TV with. I was amazed because during radiation, everybody said, oh, don't be surprised if she's really, really tired. You know, she's probably just going to want to come home and rest. And every single day you'd come home and you wanted to play with Isabel. Um, I remember one thing right before we went into um, transplant number one, and I forget the doctor's name. And this woman had explained how difficult it was going to be. And she had said point blank that it may feel like it's going to break you, but it, it won't. And, and I will say that she was 100% correct that it was extremely difficult to go through all of the treatment. But if you can just hold on and just push through, it won't break you. I think what's, what's uh, something to be mindful of as well is that when you're in a marriage, you often count on the other person to carry you when you're down. We couldn't do that for each other because we were dealing with our own things. So I couldn't count on Shane to help me emotionally through certain things because Shane had his own stuff that he was going through. So for me, it was my dad who I was able to just unload all of this emotional baggage on. I would say though that our biggest thing was just, are they okay? I'll be okay, Shane will be okay, we knew that. We just needed to know, like, are the girls okay? You know, she's still have plenty of appointments, still goes to the Jimmy Fun. You still, do you get, do you get stickers still at the Jimmy Fun or they don't do that anymore now that you're 11? I just got one today. Oh, we got one today, that's true. And do you remember when you were, when you first started over at the Jimmy Fun and how a bunch of people had to hold you down to do the shots or draw blood? Yes. And what do you always prefer, a shot or an IV? An IV. And why? 
because shots hurt too much. Shots hurt too much, right? You should get a flu shot. She'd be screaming. She'd be screaming at the flu shot, yet you had just finished years of treatment for cancer, and you would scream at the flu shot. But the IV goes in nice and smooth, you say, right? Mm -hmm. And now you do it better than any adults when we go to get blood drawn. They say, oh my goodness, you do this better than the adults, right? So Izzy, what would you say to somebody, because you're, you're older now, so what would you say to somebody who's going through it right now? Um, probably to have someone to talk to. Like, you don't need to talk to them, but just in case. What would you say, Em, to somebody who's going through it right now? Have a big supply of your favorite food. Big supply of your favorite food. I, I actually would tend to agree with that. Thank you for listening to Voices, Then and Now, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. For more episodes of Voices and to learn more about other Dana-Farber podcasts, visit www.danafarber.org slash podcasts.